Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. As we get started in the message, we're going to have a little fun today. And so I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to pull out your phones. Not so you can put them on silence. If you want to do that, that's fine. But we're going to interact a little bit this morning. Our tech team's taking me asking you questions to the next level. You know, oftentimes I'll ask you a question, I'll be like, raise your hand, and people raise their hand, and I'll ask a question and shout back the answer. And it's like whoever's the loudest gets the most influence in that. So introverts, you're going to love this, okay? I'm going to ask some questions. We're going to have a live polling that's going to take place. Here's what I want you to do. Go on, on this website, menti.com, on your phone, and we're trying this out. We've never done this before. So if this goes terrible, thank you for being a part of this. We're doing this together. If it goes well, thank the guys on the tech team as you're leaving today. But go to menti.com on your phone, and the event code is 341793. And so when you get there, enter that in there, and we'll be in the event together. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a test this morning. You're like, ooh, somebody put your phones away. No, 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 listen. It's all right. No one's going to know what you answered anyway. You'll just see how you influence this, this thing up here. And so menti.com, 341793. If you need to connect to the Wi-Fi, you can. If you've got Verizon or AT&T, please don't. If you're on the discount networks like me, Sprint, T-Mobile, whatever it is, you can go ahead and use the Wi-Fi. Um, hopefully we won't crash that whole thing here today. There's the password. And hopefully you're there by now. All right, here's our first quiz question I'm going to give you. What's your favorite local sports team? See, now a lot of times it's whoever's the loudest on this one, right? Like, yeah, I love that. And hopefully we've got, we've got the typical candidates up here. You can see at the bottom or you look on your phones where you actually will see these. NC State, UNC, Duke, ECU, Meredith, of course, none, other, maybe I missed one that you wanted to put on there. And so we've got some people logging in, putting your votes in there. Hopefully we get more than 12 of you <laughs> to put your answers in there. Go ahead. If you're thinking really hard about this, you're probably not qualified to answer this question, just so you know. Hopefully you have your answer already. I know a lot of people come from other areas, so maybe you'll have other. Maybe there's schools I haven't thought of, Peace College, whatever it is. I got some pirates here today, I'm sure. We do let Duke people come to church here in spite of all the mean things I've said. All right, Drake, will you reveal the results and their dynamic? It might be happening as we're going here. What do we got here? Still going, still going. They're coming, they're coming, don't worry. Nobody likes any sports teams. All right, that was an irrelevant question. Just kidding. We got it here. All right, NC State went in there. You still sure? You, now some of you are like, now I need to pull my phone out. Now I got it. I got it. The colors are off. Oh, yeah. Oops, we didn't mean to offend you with that. We'll work on that for second service. Thank you for your feedback. Oh, there we go. We got a couple more. Come more. Oh, wait, wait, hey, whoa. All right, next question. I'm going to ask you a Bible question now. Back to church. Back to church. I'm going to ask you a Bible question now. Here we go. Does the Bible teach that money is the root of all evil? It's just a yes or no. Yes or no. Don't yell at your answer. Just because your neighbor said something doesn't mean they're right. So go ahead and put it on your phone. Does the Bible teach that money is the root of all evil? Yes, no, six, 24, seven. Something. If it goes down, then you're like, oh, wait, my neighbor said... Okay, we see the dynamic there. The majority of you are getting this question correct. Now, if you Google, some of you might be cheating, like you're that guy in class, right? You're like, oh, no, no, does it? I'll just Google it real quick. The passage that will come up is 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. And if you look that passage up, what it actually says is not that money is the root of all evil, it's that the love of money is a root 
of all kinds of evil. So you can chase back all kinds of different wicked things that happen in this world to not money itself. Money is amoral. It's just a thing. It's our love of money. When we put it central, we make it like God in our lives that becomes a root of all kinds of evils. Okay, next question. You're going to influence the sermon by how you answer this question. Also, none of you, some of you trust us. So you're getting more people on here now. Here we go. How many people do you personally know that are heading for a Christless eternity? Before you even answer that, let me just say what I mean by that because there's enough people in this room that you may have various different ideas. We're just going with, the Bible says that the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man. He came to earth, lived a sinless life, then died on a cross. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for your sins. He was dying for my sins. He's our substitute. We've all sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. That's separation from God. That's a Christless eternity. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The gift of God is eternal life for those who believe on Jesus Christ, confess Him as Lord, believe that God raised Him from the dead. And so I'm only talking about people that have done that. So I'm not saying that someday that they would go to heaven. Hopefully they'll go to heaven. Hopefully they'll reach and meet Christ. But I'm saying if they died today, they don't have Christ in their life today. They don't have a relationship with Jesus today. So if they died today, they'd be headed for a Christless eternity. How many people do you know like that in your own life? And you might think, like thinking about names. You might, be, you might have invited one of them to church, but they might be with you right now in this moment. They might live in your house. It might be your barista. It might be your neighbor. But how many people do you know? Okay? That's where people are telling in here. Majority of people are saying 20 or more people. All right. We got that. It's interesting thing about tests is that tests can tell us things that we know in our minds. And there are certain kinds of tests that are even more revealing. But here's what happens with any kind of test. Every test is revealing. It reveals what we know. It might reveal something about us. Like if you go to the doctor, you break an arm, they'll do an x-ray. They're looking inside your body to see things that have happened. That's a, it's a test. I remember my dad passed away about the year 2000, about 19 years ago, and he had a serious heart problem. And the doctor said, well, that can be genetic, and asked my brother and I to go get an echocardiogram. It's basically an ultrasound for your heart. And they looked inside my heart. And I was thinking about that this week, in light of the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a test that could show us in our hearts where we're at in relationship with God? Like, think about last week. Last week I asked you, do you believe that God loves you? And different people have different answers. You might know what the Bible says, for God so loved the world, I'm part of the world, but do you believe He loves you? And then do you love Him? And a lot of times we answer that real subjectively, like, do I feel in love with God? What if there was a test that, like, showed you? There is. It's called money, and we're going to look at it today in the next passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 16 today. Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at, Lord willing, the first 13 verses in this. Well, what happens is Jesus tells another story, but before we even get to that, let me just say this. I know what happens in church when you talk about money, okay? Don't even think because I'm up here speaking like he doesn't have a clue what's happening. Like when I said money… The temperature level of anxiety level for everybody here went up about 10 degrees, right? Oh, no, he's going to talk about, maybe you invited a friend for the first time. You're like, I've never heard him talk about money. Now I bring a friend and you talk about money. I get it. I understand. Isn't it kind of funny how people get weird when you talk about money at church? Because we don't get weird when we talk about money anywhere else. Like everywhere you go, people want your money, right? Like every advertisement you see, you go to the mall, you're online, you're on Facebook, you didn't even go to Amazon yet, you look, talked about getting a new pair of shoes, and all of a sudden you're getting advertisements for new shoes. Like it's kind of strange if you think about it, but you don't get weirded out by that. But if the pastor mentions money, people get stressed out. 
Here's the great news. I promise you next week we're not going to have a red thermometer on the stage doing some campaign telling you if you're really in God's will, you're going to get us from this level to that level. We're not going to do that. We're not trying to get your money. By God's grace, everything that you see on this campus is debt-free. It's amazing. God's provided. And I, yeah, praise the Lord for that. And I think we're one of the most low-pressure churches ever in money. We put some boxes in it. We don't even pass a plate today. So if you're a guest today and we're talking about money, you're like, I haven't gone to church in five years, and this guy, I knew that all the church wants is my money. If you're a guest, I'm going to tell you, we don't want your money. Don't give today, okay? If you're not a believer, we certainly don't want your money. It's the, it's the members of the church that fund the mission of the church, just FYI. But here's the problem. Some of the members of the church get nervous when I talk about money too because you already know that you're not walking in God's will with your money. I can't do anything about that. The Lord's going after your heart. And the, the reality is, if you look at the Bible, what's happening in this series we're doing called Parables, you know, Love Stories, we're talking about these stories that Jesus tells that talk about the Father's pursuit of our hearts, is there's about 40 of them in the Bible, 39 to be exact. About a third of them talk about money in some way or another. Because here's what Jesus does. Jesus talks about, when he's telling these stories, things that we're, we're thinking about, things that are part of our everyday life. And Jesus doesn't need your money, but he's coming after your heart. And money is a way to get to our hearts. It's like a pathway in there. And so the message today is the same as last week. God's coming after you. And he may want to speak to you today through your money, because money matters to, a lot of, to some of us way too much. But it matters to all of us. And so what happens here, remember the context last week. We're talking about Luke chapter 15, and Jesus is teaching. There's these sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees that are there. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus talks about how much he loves lost things. Talks about lost sheep, lost coins, lost people. And it gets intense as he talks about these two different kinds of lost people, some that rebel against God. God runs after rebels. Amen? And then he talks about these older brothers. They're more covert People that will hide behind their religion. People that will, they will use God to run from God. They'll hide behind their self-righteousness, and God still loves them too. And he tells these stories, and he leaves this open invitation to older brothers, which were the Pharisees that were there. And then what happens in Luke chapter 16 is that Jesus turns, and he turns to a new audience. It's his disciples. It says in verse 1. We'll see it. Now, remember who his disciples are. Some of them were tax collectors, like Levi, Matthew, writes one of the Gospels. He walked away from a lot of money to follow Jesus. Peter walked away from a business. People, these guys have left homes, families. Look at what he says. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, so he's just finished the prodigal stories, doesn't really have an ending to it, but he just turns. He's, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So charges were brought to the master about the manager in verse 2. And he called him, the master called him, and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. I want to see the books. For you can no longer be manager. You're fired. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, so we get this inner monologue, this, his thought process, what shall I do since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summing his master's debtors one by one, and he does all of them, but here we get an example of two of them. So this is just a sample. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measure of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measure of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master 
this is where the story takes a twist, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then this is Jesus giving the lesson, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now pause right here. We'll read the rest of the verses. But isn't it true that every great story has a twist? Like if you go to the movies or you're reading a book and you start getting the characters at the beginning, you got the idea. If, you, if the story goes exactly the way that you think it's going to go, throughout the end, at the end you're like, that was good. Okay, maybe it was bad, but you know, best case scenario, someone says, "What'd you think of that movie?" Meh, that's okay. But every once in a while, you'll watch a movie or read a book, and you're like, "What just happened?" I never saw that coming. Like sometimes you'll even see, like, you'll, have you ever talked to somebody in like the lobby of the movie theater, like, "How did it go?" And you're like, "I need to watch it again." I'm not even sure I know exactly what happened, in the, but it was good. Like I loved it. Like if you watch some of these movies, like one of my favorite movies ever is *A Beautiful Mind*. I don't know if you ever seen that movie. And I remember being like, those aren't real people? Like, what are you talking about? It kind of fakes you out. Like, there's a twist. Or like, that guy was dead the whole time? Who knew that that was happening there? And there's different stories, different movies that you see where it's like, I never saw, that's the bad guy? I thought he was the good guy the whole time. Like, you're just watching through. And if you're reading this story, and you're hearing Jesus tell, now Jesus is the master storyteller. you got this dishonest manager. You'd expect Jesus to give a lesson on honesty. you expect to talk to talk about not stealing. But instead, the guy gets commended. Great job. Look at how shrewd he is. And people debate about how can Jesus take this dishonest guy and use this to teach us lessons. Now, some Bible commentators will say this, that, that, that Jesus takes a bad example and gives us a good lesson. Maybe. I think he's doing a whole lot more than that. And we'll get to it as we unpack this towards the end of this, this message. But what's really clear are the lessons Jesus gives. Regardless of how you take the story, the lessons are exactly the same. That's verses 9 through 13. Look at verses 9 through 13. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, that's money, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. And this proverbial statement, we've probably all heard this before, verses 10 through 12 here. It says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth you who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 13 is really the summary of the whole thing here. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let me summarize. God, God uses money to reveal our hearts. This is like a divine echocardiogram right here. And he says at the end, hey, you can't serve both. And not saying you don't need money, not saying you're going to be a monk, go hide in the woods, like whatever, but you can't serve it and serve God. And so what we see here, our main point for this whole message today is this, is that, that money reveals our real master. Money reveals our real master. And you see, Jesus talked about this in other places, like the Sermon on the Mount when he's preaching in Matthew chapter 6. He says a very interesting statement. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which is really interesting that he doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will go. He says where your, where your, tre- where your money's at, your heart follows your money. So we want to get a look. We want a divine echocardiogram here. Here's what we do. Let's look at, your, look at your bank account. Like this isn't how do you feel. Look at your credit card statements. Look at your giving statements. Look at how you use your car. Look at how you use your house. Let's look at your stuff because it reveals your real master. Now, here's the thing I love about this. Like, I love how Jesus, remember he loves Pharisees? He loves older brothers? Look at verse 14. I didn't read verse 14 yet. Verse 14, the Pharisees were still there. They're still listening. 
It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They were upset with Jesus for teaching this. So this wasn't like, oh, such a good message, pastor. It was, can you believe that guy? Can you believe that Jesus, rabbi guy, out there teaching that? See, here's what the Pharisees believed about money. They believed that the more money you had, the more God loved you. And it was evidence of your great faith. It was evidence of your great obedience. It was ev- and they were almost all rich. But the problem wasn't that, that they were rich. There's a lot of rich people that were people of God. David, man of my own heart, Abraham. In the, being rich wasn't the problem. The problem was, verse 14, they were lovers of money. So what does it mean to love money? <laughs> we can talk about that and throw that out there. Got a Bible phrase. Think about falling in love in American culture. Does somebody see money? Money, that's really attractive. I think I'm going to have a conversation with some money. I'm going to have some money to go on a date with me. We're going to take a compatibility test and see if our gifts complement one another. We're going to spend some time together. I think we could do this life thing together, and then we'll make some vows to money. That's how it usually works. How do you know if you love money? Well, look at verse 13. Look at what it says in verse 13. If we unpack that and then think about that in light of love, no servant can serve two masters. Can't ride two horses at the same time. For either you'll hate the one, love the other. Okay, so if we love God, there's going to be a hatred towards money then because it's either or. We devote to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So we claim to serve God. He, you know, he became a servant for us, served us by dying on the cross. We're supposed to serve the Father in this process. Then what we have to do is we have to make money serve us. If you serve money, then that shows your love for money. How do you know if you serve money? If everything you do is to get money, if your thoughts revolve around money, if money is central and ultimate in your life, that's your master. The best way to know that, doesn't have to be subjective, is look. Look at how your money gets used. But if your money serves you, then you get to be master over your money, and if you're serving your master, your heavenly father, then ultimately that money is being used for the kingdom of God. A hundred, not talking about a tithe, okay? We're not talking about tithing today. We're talking about 10% of your money going to the church. We're talking about 100% of everything you've been entrusted with. So the question becomes for us, how do we make our money serve us? And I think we get that from the story. I think Jesus gives us the instructions there, and there's at least three ways. And the first way is this. We must have a manager's mentality with our money. We must have a manager's mentality. And you look at that. You go back up to verse 1. We'll unpack this story. It says, he also said to the disciples, the disciples are there, there's a rich man who is so rich, he hired somebody else to manage his estate. So he's away from the estate. But look at what he says. Who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Okay. So this guy's got a manager. That word for manager there in Greek is oikonomos. Literally, if you break that word down, it means house manager. And so it'd be the idea, like, if you left town and you had another property you lived at somewhere else and you wanted somebody to manage your house, though, somebody got to keep the air conditioning and the heat and mow the lawn and do all that. Like, they're responsible for everything in that house, but it's still your house. Here's the main thing you need to know about being a manager. The manager is not the owner. The manager is not the owner. The problem for this guy, when it says here that he's wasting his manager's possessions, is he's no longer acting like a manager. He's acting like an owner or... The, manager's been gone, or the master's been gone for so long that he doesn't think there's going to be a day of accountability. That he just doesn't think that it's going to matter even. He just do whatever he wants with the stuff. So he's, in fact, it's interesting, the word for wasting that's used there in chapter 16, verse 1, is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 15 and verse 13 for what the prodigal son did when he squandered everything the father had given him. It's the same word, same Greek word. 
So this guy, he's wasting here. What does this look like? Do we do this? I was thinking about that this week. Best illustration I could think of, and I thought of other illustrations, but the best illustration I could think of comes from a pretty dated movie. Now, I get it. I know that some of you, maybe you're in your 20s, and you're going to be like, this guy's so out of touch. Have pity on me. That's fine. It's still a great illustration. If it's a terrible illustration, I got another service, and I'll just change it between services, but here's what you're getting. We can talk about it afterwards. There's a movie from the 1990s. It's called Dumb and Dumber. All right, yeah, you guys got it. Second service is getting this one too. There's, here's the premise. The premise of the movie, for like the three of you who haven't seen it, was there's these two guys, Jim Carrey's in it, and there's these two guys, Harry and Lloyd, and they find a briefcase. They think the briefcase is lost, but actually it's ransom money that's in this briefcase. These guys, they're really nice. Bless their hearts would be a great phrase from the South, right? Like, they're not the sharpest guys ever, okay? But they're really nice guys. Like, they're pretty innocent, a lot of stuff. And what happens is they go on this journey. It's all the, story, the funny stuff, all the stuff that they get into because they're just dumb. And the, t- the title of the movie is perfect. And also, when you think about stewardship, it's perfect. Because what happens is, partway through, the briefcase breaks open. They realize there's money in it. Now, these two dudes are broke. And their jobs aren't very good. And all kinds of stuff's happening in their lives. But, like, cash is flowing out of this thing. And then the next scene, what you see is they start talking about, they have expenses and trying to get this briefcase to Mr. and Mrs. Samsonite to try and get it to the rightful owners. And so they said, we're just going to spend what we need to spend, and we'll, we'll keep track of everything, down to the penny. We'll reimburse the whole deal. But then the next purchase is they get the president suite at this hotel. They end up buying some tuxedos. They buy a Lamborghini Diablo, 275K, right there for that one. And judgment day comes towards the end of the movie. They're standing there with the bad guy. The bad guy's got a gun pointed at him. And he opens up the briefcase, and all the money's gone. It's just paper slips. But then Jim Carrey says, no, 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 those are genuine IOUs. And he grabs one. He picks it up. He goes, 275000 That was a sports car. Hang on to that one. And as the viewer, you're watching, you're going, you're an idiot. Because judgment day has come. And now you're called to account, and you've wasted the owner's stuff. And what happens with many of us is we forget that we're just managers. And, and sometimes we might know the principle that God owns it all. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50. Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, the silver is his, the gold is his, and you can quote that. You might even remember when we went verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, there was a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you remember that you are not even your own? This is your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you were bought at a price. You're not your own. The blood of Jesus Christ purchased you at Calvary. You don't even belong to you. You belong to the Father. He's purchased you with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You might know all of those things, but then sometimes what happens is, it seems like it's been a long time since Jesus was here. And you know Bible verses that say he's coming back, but it just doesn't seem real. And then we act like fools with the things that have been entrusted to us. See, the reality is we're just managers of our families, of our own lives, of our stuff, of the money in our bank account. And you know what's so much easier to have a loose grip on things that we're just managing than the things that we think that we own? I promise, I promise you, if any of you here said, hey, Scott, I want you to be the manager of all my stuff. And say you like had a car, you had $1,000 in your bank account. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And here's what I'll charge you a year. And we'll go through that whole process. And then you call me up and you're like, hey, I want you to give me some groceries today. Could you pick up this and take some money out of my account? No problem. 
Even if you called me up and you said, listen, I saw this guy outside of Harris Teeter, and I got $1,000 in my bank account, and I've got keys in my pocket. Could you give it to him? No, jerk stuff. Okay. Now, if I went to Harris Teeter, and I wasn't managing your stuff, but I sensed that God said, oh, there's this guy. I should give him all the money in my bank account and the keys to my car. I'd probably be like, are you sure, God? Is that you? Because it's a lot harder when you think you're the owner. It's really easy to let stuff pass through your hands when you're just the manager. See, if we want to use our money to serve us and ultimately our master, we must have a manager's mentality. Not only that, we must have an eternal focus. We must have an eternal focus. If you want your money to serve you, you must have an eternal, the long-term game in mind with your finances. And how do we know that this is what Jesus is saying in this parable? Because I can say that from the stage, but how do we know that that's what Jesus is teaching? Well, I think there's two ways for sure. The first one is just when you look at the first three verses of the story that he tells here, he's talking about a judgment day which gets our mind, and judgment day could be when Jesus returns, it might be when you die, but it's probably going to happen a lot sooner than most of us think, like the guy in this passage, which then gets us thinking about eternity. But then, in verse 9, he makes it really clear, he just says this is about eternity. So remember, the first eight verses are the story, then verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, notice he doesn't say if, it's like just a, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He's talking about eternity here, eternal rewards, talking about using our money to influence people's lives. But it's interesting truth here that he points out as he's talking about eternity, keep in mind it's all temporary. Everything, your light and momentary affliction, difficulty you're going through, temporary. The abundance you're experiencing, temporary. See, here's the problem for people like the Pharisees that think that life is all about money that what they're experiencing right now, it's never going to get any better than this. The good news for people who have Jesus as master in their life and use money to serve them, it's never going to get any worse than this. Whatever you're going through, it's never, this is bad. You want your best life now? Make money your God. You want your best life later? Follow Jesus. It just keeps getting better. You look here. And you see what happens that Jesus says, listen, it's going to fail. This is all temporary. So when it fails, and you, let me point this out. You don't even have to be a Christian to know this truth. Like, even non-Christians grasp this idea that money, all this stuff here is just temporary. Like, you'll hear Christians say things like, non-Christians say things like, you know, you don't see hearses following, you know, whatever, hearses with U-Hauls, whatever. It's a terrible statement, but I've seen it. But anyway, but the idea is you came into this world naked, you're going to leave, none of your stuff's going to matter. I remember one time seeing an article by Stephen King, the author. You guys know Stephen King, writes horror books, and no, you don't, you're Christians, got it. Let me tell you who he is. Uh, he's a suspense author, and he's written a bunch of books, and some of them get turned into movies, and most people wouldn't accuse him of being a Christian. I remember reading an article by him one time. He was talking about how he was laying in a ditch, had been in a car accident. He was laying in a ditch, covered in mud, covered in blood, got glass in his hair, his tibia sticking out of the side of his jeans, and he said, and I realized they don't take MasterCard. It doesn't matter how much money. He's got a lot of money. He said, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Then he gave an analogy. His analogy was this. Imagine this scene. He said, imagine a picnic in a backyard. Dad's there. Dad's a little overweight. He's kind of plump, but he's real happy. And he's at the grill, and he's making some fried chicken or some kind of food on the grill. I can't remember what he had on the grill. And he said, the family's sitting there eating. They got the potato salad, the corn. And they're, they're there, the brothers and sisters, and mom's there. And he says, around the yard, there's this big wooden fence. And the outside of the fence are a bunch of emaciated people. And they're looking in. And then he says, the backyard is America. 
We are the family. The rest of the world's looking in. Why do we have so much? And why don't we use it to help other people? Why would, and he gets this idea of giving, but he doesn't even know Jesus. He doesn't even have a grasp of eternity. There's no eternal focus, but he still gets the idea. This is all temporary, because you know what he says at the end of the article? He says, why wouldn't we do it? Because we're going to take it with us, period. And then he just says, please, in the most sarcastic tone you could possibly imagine. Why, why don't we use what we… He's just saying from a totally humanistic perspective, it only makes sense if we have so much that we'd give it to people who don't have as much. But then you and I as Christians are told even greater motivation, greater truth is it how you use what you have here impacts how you spend there. It will, it will change how you experience it. Now, it's going to be awesome for everybody. There's not going to be any crying. There's not going to be any pain. None of that. It's going to be amazing. And you're not going to covet other people because they got more, any of that kind of stuff. But it's not going to be the same for everybody. Look at what he says here. And I tell you, make friends. Use it. What you do here influences there. I tell you, make friends for yourselves here by means of unrighteous wealth. That's that temporary money that you have, houses that you have, cars that you have, whatever it is. So that... When it fails, it's all temporary, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. So who are they? The friends that you make for eternity. That's the people you win to Christ by using your money. Paul says, he talks about it, we're going to talk about true riches here in a couple verses. He talks about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. You can look that up in your own study later this week. He says to the Thessalonians, you're my joy and my crown. Well, a lot of times we talk about eternal rewards. Like, what are they? What are the people? People that you impact for Christ? We know that Jesus is building us. I, I prepare a place for you. The master carpenter is building you a home in heaven. Like there's, there, it is an influence. What we do here influences there. How dumb do we have to be to be so short-sighted to think this is all there is? You see, short-sighted decisions end up being bad decisions, just so you know. Like in the moment, Esau in the Old Testament, you see the people, David with Bathsheba. You take these short-sighted decisions, and there's long-term consequences. Best illustration as we talk about money is credit cards. Do you remember when you got your first credit card? you're a teenager in college or something like that, you get this credit card, and you think, it's amazing, they'll let you take anything home from the store. It's a little piece of plastic. And you think, I want that thing, and I don't have the money for it right now, but I'm going to take it, and then I'll pay for it later. And they will charge you 20% interest forever. And so those jeans that don't fit anymore, I mean, that wore out, uh, whatever. The couch that you bought, like that you thought was so amazing, that you're like, this is terrible, the cushion's sunk in, it's bad. You're still paying for it, and you don't even want the thing anymore. We make bad, when we make short-term decisions, we make bad decisions. And if you, maybe you're in credit card debt, by the way. We've got a class coming up in the, in the fall in September. It's going to be on Wednesday night. It's going to go for nine weeks. Nine weeks that could change your financial life. It's called Financial Peace University. Uh, if you're in credit card debt, I strongly recommend it. But even if you're not in credit card debt, you just want to learn how to be more generous with the things that you have. It'd be a great class. Two months of your life that could transform your financial life uh, from now on. But it's not just, we, you know, it's credit card, you think about that, we probably all made dumb decisions that we wish we could undo. But, like, think about how hard people work towards retirement. You ever see people retire and it's like, they got the bow and the thing, all of it set up, and then they die? Okay, say that doesn't happen. Say it's not a year after, you know, you're 60, maybe you're really shrewd and instead of 65, you'd retired at 60. Maybe you live to be like 80 or 85, 20, 25 years. Like, you get 25 years out of that. Don't run out of money. Okay, we're talking about eternity. What's 20 or 25 years in light of eternity? Like, we'll work that hard thinking about how to plan for 20 years maybe? Maybe. Maybe two. But we sing songs about 
We've been there for 10,000 years, just as though it's begun. 10 billion years later, what we do now is going to be impacted by in 10 billion years, we're still going to be enjoying the, the investment if we've made that investment. We've got to have an eternal focus. Not only that, third thing, and this is where we'll unpack this parable. You must have a, God's passion for lost people. You must have God's passion for lost people. Let's walk back through this parable for a second. Think about what's taking place here. You get to verse 1, and he's a manager, yep. And you know what the thrust of this whole parable is? Here's the summary of the whole sermon. You've listened long enough now that I'll just tell you. This is the cliff note. Here's the cliff notes, right? Most of us, what we do with money is that we use people to get money. I mean, I want to admit that, but we use it manipulating our networks and trying to get to the climb the ladder. We use people to get money. But what God says is use money to get people. Your folks need to shift from, instead of, this money is just a thing. What is God, if you love God, you love what he loves. What does he love? Context, context. Chapter 15, he's coming after you. He loves people. You said you know lost people. Most of you said you know more than 20 lost people. He's coming after those people. So I want to use you and your stuff to reach those people. Start using your stuff to reach those people rather than using people to get more stuff. And so here's what happens in this passage. This guy's been wasting. Remember, that's the answer. Luke chapter 15, verse 13, squandering wealth. Here it is. It's right here in this passage. What was the charge? Verse 1, he's wasting the wealth. Then verse 2 is interesting, judgment day. Crisis comes. Here's the reality. Crisis almost always creates clarity. If you have a financial crisis, all of a sudden buying a $5 cup of coffee doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, I can get a whole meal. $5 doing that. Like if you're, is this, have you ever done this? Where you're like, go to a party and you're like worried about, it's humid outside, like a bad hair day. Ladies, of course, gentlemen, you would never have this happen. Trying to get your outfit all right. And then some kid hops on a bike and is headed towards oncoming traffic. All of a sudden you don't care about your outfit or your hair, right? Crisis creates clarity. For some of us, realizing that we've been mismanaging our master's stuff today is a crisis for us. We're going to be called to account at some day, at some point. That's what happens for this guy. The crisis comes. He gets called to account. You've been wasting. He doesn't say, no, 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 I haven't. He has been. He's actually guilty. And so what happens in the next couple verses? Glance down there. Look at it. He says, I know what I'll do. If you have the NIV, the ESV says this. He says in verse 4, I've decided what to do. It's an aha moment. I know I've got an idea. So that when I'm, re- I'm all of a sudden going to stop having the short-term view, I'm going to have a long-term view. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. I'm going to stop using people to get money. I'm going to start using my money to get people. And so, summoning his master's debtors one by one, so we don't get all of them, he just tells us two here. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oils, probably olive oil that he's talking about here. Uh, if you have the NIV, it says about 800 gallons. It's, it's between 800 and 900 gallons, so we'll say 850 gallons of oil that's here. That would be about three years of wages for the average worker. So we put that into American currency today. We'll just say that the average household income is $50,000. It's actually more than that. We'll say 50 because it's easier to do the math. And I'm not a math guy. So that's $150,000 he owes. And so what does he say to him? He said, take your bill quickly, write 50. That'd be like saying cut the debt by $75,000. Wow, that's significant. That guy's going to like him. And he also has a field big enough to have about 150 olive trees on it, meaning... He could probably hire this guy later. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. That'd be about a hundred acre field this guy has. So he's got significant means himself. He said, a hundred measures of wheat. That'd be about seven years wages, by the way. 
So you do the math on that. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so you'd be like, well, he, he, didn't, he only cut that guy's bill by 20%. Yep. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But that'd still be about $75,000 to another guy who's able to hire him. So what has he done here? Now, the people who say that Jesus just took a bad example and he's given a good lesson think that he just ripped his master off. I don't think that's what happened based on the master's response when the master said, oh, that was shrewd. See, he's cunning here. Here's the reality. In that time period, when an employee did something illegal, the boss couldn't be held accountable for it. It wasn't the master's fault. And so what ends up happening here is, I believe, is that Jews weren't allowed to charge interest. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. Jews aren't allowed to charge interest in loans. But unscrupulous Jews, what they would do, and Jesus is showing here as a carpenter, I understand how the business world works. And I know what you guys are doing. What they would do is, instead of charging interest, they would just build it into the principal. So instead of saying something cost a dollar that only cost a dollar and then charging an interest on it, sometimes even 100% interest would be not be uncommon in this time, they just say it cost $2. And so what this guy was doing, and it might be the very reason why charges were brought against him, is he was actually illegally charging interest by building it into the principal. And so he's saying to somebody, you owe $150,000, but all he's going to give to his master is $75,000. He's basically taking the interest, and it's his commission. So he's stealing. What happens when he comes to his senses, when he has a come-to-himself moment like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, when the crisis comes, it brings clarity because the guy's been wasting. What he's doing is he's given another illustration that the Pharisees can identify with because they loved money. They weren't going to go out and waste all their stuff on prostitutes and wild living, but he's saying, you're also the prodigal. You're running from God. You don't even know it because you're lovers of money. And so he's showing them this story and saying, I know how you guys do this stuff. But you see how shrewd this guy was? Look at what he did with his money when he had the realization that judgment day was coming. He said, I know what I'll do, and it's going to end up making his master look generous. It's going to end up making his master have a better reputation in the community. His master's going to get his money faster than he would have gotten it. Because why would these guys pay? They didn't have to pay. It wasn't time to pay. And what this guy realizes, I'm never going to see this money anyways. I've lost my job. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start using what I have here, the little leverage that I have left, to influence people so that later they'll welcome me into their homes, and he might even get a job. But then Jesus, he gives the kind of the record scratch moment here when he says not, hey, don't be dishonest like this guy. Hey, stop stealing like this guy was stealing. Instead, he says, look how shrewd he was. Be shrewd is the command here. Because look at what Jesus says. The master commended this dishonest manager for this shrewdness. Then he says this, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of the light. He's saying non-believers are more crafty, more creative in how to get stuff than we are in how to win souls. Think about that for a second. You ever seen Shark Tank? Some creativity there. Some bad ideas, but there's some good ideas there. You ever heard of a Ponzi scheme? Yeah, it's not legit, bad news, but that's pretty creative. Just shift money from here to here, and people have enough, they'll never know. We'll just, and they'll always just live off the money. And pretty creative. And what do we do? I'll just send a check to this organization. They tell people about Jesus. That's not real creative. So what do we do? How can we be shrewd in using our money to win people into the kingdom? Let me give you a couple examples. There's one example. I remember I have a friend uh, who spoke at a conference one time, and he was talking from, about Abraham and Abraham being blessed by God so that he could bless other people. And if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 12, you're not talking about you're blessed to be a blessing, essentially. I'm going to bless those to bless you, and you're blessed you so you can bless the world to draw people to me. It's not what they did, but that was the idea that happened there. And so he's challenging people, whatever you've been given, God's given you that to influence people for the kingdom of God. So same principle that we're talking about here. He's just talking from Genesis. said so the next morning he met this woman 
who said she was at the bus stop, and she's sitting there, and this guy came to the bus stop, and he's talking on his cell phone in a different language. And she sensed that the Lord was telling her, you should give that man your umbrella. She's standing there holding this purple umbrella. And she starts, you ever had this happen? Those of you who had these impressions on your heart that God calls you to a level of obedience, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know if that guy, he doesn't, it's not raining. He doesn't need an umbrella, she said. Like to the Lord, she's saying this thing. And she said, and, and besides, I'm a woman. He's a man. He speaks different. Maybe it's uncomfortable for him if I come up to him and talk to him. And then she realized, she, she got to the point where she said, plus it's a purple umbrella. What man wants a purple umbrella? She said, I thought to myself, I'm arguing with God about the color of my umbrella. Stop. So she walks up to this guy. He says, sir, I'd like to give you an umbrella. No, 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 I don't want the umbrella. He spoke a little bit of English. No, no, I don't want the umbrella. And then finally she just said, God told me to give you my umbrella. Okay, takes the umbrella, goes about his day. She doesn't see him again. She's sitting in a restaurant later that night at a hotel. One of her colleagues comes in. Says, you'll never believe what happened to this meeting today. This guy came walking in with a purple umbrella. (laughs) And I said to him, why are you carrying a purple umbrella? It's not even raining outside. And then he told me that some woman at a bus stop gave it to him, said that God told her to give it to him. That led to a conversation where I talked about what God gave for him in his son, Jesus Christ. And the guy trusted Christ as a savior. What a gift that she do how God used that. But let's not overcomplicate shrewdness. Sometimes shrewdness is just listening. Just listening to the Lord when he, he prompts your heart to do something with your, it might be just as silly as an umbrella or your car or some money in your pocket, whatever it is, like how, buy somebody a meal. Like you just listen to him and let him take care of the results. She didn't get to lead the guy to Christ, but God, God had that all sovereignly worked out. She's a piece. And some of her stuff was a piece to start a conversation. Remember there was a woman in our church got a burden for some orphans, and she wanted to sponsor some orphans, but she didn't want to get relationally connected with them. And, and as a church, we do this through Compassion International. We really focused on Bolivia, but she had a burden for India. She started sponsoring some orphans in India. It took a year before she even started writing them letters because she didn't want to get too connected. Uh, now one of the girls calls her mom, by the way, and she's writing letters, she's teaching bridge kids, and had some of her class collect some money and start writing some letters to these girls, and then she stopped getting letters from one of the girls for a little while. She didn't know why or what happened. And then after a few months, she got a letter back, and the letter said that the girl that was at the orphanage had appendicitis, the orphanage didn't have money to pay for her to have the surgery, but then you sent a special gift, right, when we needed it, and it saved my life. See, sometimes, sometimes there's creative ways that are beyond what we just naturally think of, God wants to use you. You might not always know. The, it might be when you get to eternity and these people welcome you into heaven that you find out the results. But you don't have to go around the world. Like you, it happens right here in Raleigh, just so you know. I was meeting with a, a couple this week that's connecting our, our church with this ministry called Safe Families. I don't know if you've heard of Safe Families or not. If not, let me tell you the summary of how it works. They want you to have radical hospitality, disruptive generosity in your life because there's a lot of people in our city that have needs. Right now, Wake County's turning people away like crazy that are coming to them that are desperate, not church people, that are desperately coming to churches seeking help. And here's what happens. Like single moms have, lose a job or have a medical crisis that happens. And to, they can't get back on their feet because they also got to take care of these kids. So what they need is like free babysitting. Somebody will just let their, a safe family that will let kids come into their home and be there for a time period while somebody's working. Or in some cases, might live with you for a weekend or a week or a month. Average is about 45 days. They need host families to do that. And so you might be like, oh, I don't have a bunch of money in my bank account, but you, do you have a home? Do you have a safe home? God's entrusted you with that. 
Maybe you're, they build circles of influence too. Maybe it's like, well, I don't have time for that, but I do have money in my bank account. There's people that provide resources to those families that are the safe families. There's people that are a support network. Maybe you're, you're maxed out on all your giving right now, but you, but you emotionally have something to get. Like, use whatever you have to influence people for the kingdom. Those are the people that are going to welcome you into heaven one day. Now, I asked you the question at the beginning of the service. How many lost people do you know? How many people do you know that are headed for a Christless eternity? And you, many of you said more than 20. I think it was 80-some percent or more than 20. Why don't you pull your phone back out right now? We're going to go back to that survey. There's one more question on the survey. And the question on there is just, what is their first name? And I just went, don't write somebody's last name. What, what is the first name of one of the people that you know? Just one of the people that you know that don't know Jesus Christ right now. If you just type their name into that, that answer column, that'd be great. And if you're interested in Safe Families or Financial Peace University, I encourage you, there's gonna be some people out at the information table today that would love to talk with you as a, an immediate application of this. But really, the limit on how you reach the people whose names you're typing in there is your own creativity. And every time you're creative, you're reflecting the image of God, who's a creative God. Those people on Shark Tank that don't even know Jesus, they're still image bearers. When they are creative, they're still reflecting the creativity of our creator, God. They don't even know it. When you're doing that on God's mission, oh, that non-believers would see our good deeds and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Hopefully you put some names in here. Let's throw the reveal. Here's some of the names that are put up there. And you might find your person on here. Well, maybe God will even use you to reach, you know, Doreen, Kiara, Anna, Dan, Aspen, people that aren't the people that you were thinking of. And can you imagine if these are the people that welcome you into eternal dwellings? It's based on how we use what we have here. Now. Let's pray.